The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. <clears throat> so welcome. Um, I'm Matthew. Um, how are you doing? Maybe a little thumb pull. Down. Okay, okay. Pretty cheery for the YouTube folks, FYI. Um, yeah, happy to, uh, to sit with you. I tested negative, by the way, just to, in case you're looking at me like I'm a viral vector. Uh, just, uh, so uh, this is uh, from, from uh, I was listening to a talk from Ajahn Sajito and um, transcribed and, you know, edited down a few things. And uh, I'll read uh, just three, three paragraphs here. So, uh, and Ajahn Sajito in the Thai forest tradition um, and has been in robes for close to um, 50 years. Um, and uh, I, I recently sat, sat with him. So, um, says, um, I was visiting my elder brother yesterday. He has Alzheimer's and also Parkinson's. Parkinson's disease incapacitates the body and Alzheimer's incapacitates the mind. So this is obviously a very well, yeah, it's a Dhamma messenger. All this can break down. The physical body can break down, the mental faculties can break down. Still, somebody is still in there. He's unable to communicate. Hello. Okay, nothing happens. Just throw some words in. Nothing happens. Obviously, words aren't going to work here, right? So I just bring awareness over the whole situation. I make bodily contact. I start gently massaging a leg, holding a hand, massaging his hand. Sense of contact and then spreading awareness over a situation with goodwill. After about 10 minutes, he starts to speak can't make much sense, but at least you can see he's encouraged to come out and at least start to say something. And I'm just listening, encouraging. And then I just start chanting, metta, metta sutta, just radiating loving kindness. His other hand comes over, grabs hold of mine, three hands linked together, just chanting slowly, metta sahagatena. You could feel the sense of ease and love and happiness because the energies, the body energy, the heart energy is linking up. So even though the thinking brain dissolves, breaks down, you can still have a sense that, of, you know, that I'm meeting this person. There is a meeting place here. It's also not up to me to make something happen. You know, I cannot cure this person. I cannot change this person. There's nothing I can do or say, however much I like to. But he can still receive presence, can still receive energy, and still receive loving kindness. And as we're sitting there for about an hour or so, 
and then gradually his hand became stronger and stronger. You know, uh, this is poignant, but also something very satisfying because one feels the sense of wanting to do something, being a bit worried, wanting to help, feeling, what can I do? Just relaxing. Everybody gets to the end of their life. Sometimes people get to the end of their mind before they get to the end of their life. But that doesn't mean you abandon them. Just made uh, you abandon your wish that they'd be something other than the way they are right now. And then you can meet them. You can start to do uh, that with people that are dying. But it's more like you have to practice that with people who are living rather than trying to make them some way or another, or, you know, you just hold with awareness and loving kindness and trust they will see that and the best will come out of that. So... Here is this uh, this this monk who has um, stripped so much out of his life, and I heard, heard him say that uh, just in the the place he was staying, he just kept kept the lights down, right, because he didn't really want the world always constantly jumping out at heart mind you know just like very renunciate life dedicated to the cultivation of chitta heart mind and um, and so much has been stripped out but relating relationship remains right care remains and we talk so much about what is shed on this path and and a lot is shed but we also keep a lot too and there's something poignant to me about um, that uh, that that uh, Ajahn was speaking about his his brother right um, this kind of the deep mystery of the karmic bonds that we call family, right? That kind of certain kind of reverence that that we have culturally for family, and I, I think for good reason, for the most part. But the kind of mystery of just being. Uh, being of them, but distinct from them, being a kind of expression, you know, so much shared, sharing their pain, sharing their potential. Sometimes we are, the next generation is just a kind of expression of the potential that was unlived in the prior generation. So we do our best to nurture the seeds of uh, wisdom and love that we've inherited. And uh, 
was teaching college students this past week, and um, one of them came up to me at the end of a lecture and said, "You know, I'm I'm uh, I'm practicing mindfulness. I'm practicing mindfulness, but I'm still afraid to die." Is that twenty or something? And uh, so, yeah, everybody gets to the end of their life. And that's a a Dhamma messenger, classically. Something to wake us up. Everybody gets to the end of their life. And there are implications for how we live, of course. Um... There are implications for how we live. And usually mortality, you make mortality salient in the mind, and it it does a lot of bad things to the heart, generally, when you meet it without wisdom, without love. It can, you see, like so much of uh, the derangement of our culture is a function of unconsciousness around death. And um, the the fear around that can be marshaled for the most nefarious purposes. And generally, it deforms our mind, but um, it need not, need not. It is a dhamma messenger. But in order for it not to make us more brittle, um, we have to take it into the heart in a, a way, treating it as a Dhamma messenger. Bertrand Russell said, the world is vast and our own powers are limited. If all our happiness is bound up entirely in our personal circumstances, it's difficult not to demand of life more than it has to give. And to demand too much is the surest way of getting even less than is possible. And so, as I hear this, hear this talk, you know, like, okay, let this, um, this Dhamma messenger, let it just like, let the finitude sensitize me to goodness. Sensitize me to goodness. That is one thing death can do, is it sensitizes us to goodness. Because it's all that matters then. It's like the only currency that matters, even a little. And it is not a perfect consolation, but it is the only one, as far as I can see. And a lot of uh, a lot of the Dharma path is just becoming progressively sensitized to goodness in oneself, in others, and we just get more and more responsive to that. We take our cues from goodness. We live in this kind of open feedback loop, where as a Dharma practitioner. Everything is teaching us, right? As uh, that famous phrase from Ajahn Chah. There is a lot of intimacy in illness, you know, like we just come to depend on the kindness of others. 
And we can live a whole life as a kind of aspiring to be an island, independent, but in the end, the nurse will get us. The brother will get us. And we come to uh, rely in one way or another on loved ones, on caretakers. And so the the kind of intimacy of the body breaking down and the, the kind of love expressed through the touch uh, is moving to me. And so Ajahn arrives and the words, they just don't go anywhere. We know that experience. The words just don't go anywhere. Uh, as if uh, like uh, words, words are the wrong language. Now sometimes they're not. Sometimes words can be medicine and... Um, you know, I, I think ideally the kind of talking about the Dharma is supposed to be medicine. But um, even that's not even so much about the words. The words are just kind of a thread from one body to another. A thread from one body to another making love visible in some way. That's the function of the words. And so, um, in this case though, words don't go anywhere. And we, we see that. And often words don't go anywhere, even though they feel words, stories, conceptualizations can feel like the realest thing in the world. You know, amidst the the um, yeah, in the in the kind of bubble encased within the the narrative of our life, um, words feel more real than anything, and it can feel like um, happiness. Happiness is about kind of rearranging the puzzle pieces of thought in our mind. And, uh, and even the Dharma can get heady. We can get heady about what we're doing here and get kind of lost in Dharma abstractions, be tracking Dharma progress in this uh, highly conceptualized way. And, um, and so the Dharma, in a sense, like our, our um, self-model just recruits the Dharma as another way of reifying itself, as another way of becoming all too knowing. The kind of model we bring to the world, self and other, the Dharma gets kind of recruited in as a, a, another facet of of this all too familiar story and so we're encouraged to stay connected to the body which in a sense is a we both know the body 
but it's also we're connected to uh, a certain kind of not knowing. There's a certain kind of openness where we're being asked to kind of put down all the familiar tropes and stories and lines and words and just inhabit, pour the awareness into the body. We try to practice sometimes in a disembodied way, but then we just get kind of mired in complexity. Cormac McCarthy um, from Blood Meridian says, uh, a man's at odds to know his mind because his mind is what he has to know it with. He can know his heart, but he don't want to. Rightly so. Best not to look there. We could quibble with that last part, you know, and I will, you know, right? But um, yeah, sometimes to know to know one's mind, all we have is our mind, and we just kind of get lost in complexity, and uh, and so we breathe. We breathe, we reconnect with our body. And our heart, of course, I I do get the sentiment of best not to look there. Um, but, uh, But we can feel into that, we can feel into that. And that feels a little bit less like the mind trying to know itself and a more like, uh, Oh yeah, this body can be felt, the surges and sense the the goodness, the sensitivity, the receptivity can be sensed of the of the heart. And so uh the path the path really begins when we feel uh, feel the dharma in our bones. So Ajahn's rubbing his leg, holding his hand, massaging his hand. Very intimate, uh, very embodied, you know. When words fail, okay, embodiment, heart energy, transmitting a kind of love through touch. And speaking another language rather than words. And we are kind of uh, mammals, you know. And um, touch does a lot to our system, a lot. Sometimes we don't don't even know, you know. So there's sort of like, oh yeah, just like hard to even track what that does to the heart. But there's something soothed at a deep level in uh, gentle, loving touch. nine-year-old nephew tried out for a kind of elite baseball team, at least elite for nine-year-olds, and uh, (laughs) did not make the team. Close, but did not make the team. His best friend, with whom he has some competitive, rivalrous relationship, made the team. This is just the world collapsing, you know, kind of, for a nine-year-old. And um, and so I'm like, this is just, you know, quite 
upset and I'm like I'm trying like every therapeutic way in to try to soothe them you know it's like okay taking like all these different tacks and uh and then uh it's uh, you know I'm just and just I knew it wasn't really working and but I'm like try what else am I supposed to do uh, okay trying 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 and he says can you please stop talking <laughs> And uh, like, okay, okay. And so he's got this swing in his room that like hangs down from the ceiling, and it's like this like drape of like nice fabric or something. You could just kind of get fully in it, and you just you're just swinging from the ceiling, and it's like. And so I'm sitting there, and he's kind of encased in this this uh, this swing, and I'm just like, you know, just pushing you know it's like simple simple kind of uh, touch movement things settling down this is uh, Nick Cave uh, re- recent uh, book um, which is describing the kind of aftermath of uh, the the death of his 15-year-old son died in, a, in an accident and um and he's like in you know in mourning hiding some kind of embryonic process after this and then he finally goes out you know actually leaves his home so says uh uh, in conversation with somebody he says as far as the fans were concerned they saved my life it was never, never in any way an imposition. And what you remember ultimately are the acts of kindness, the small but monumental gestures. It's a vegetarian takeaway place in Brighton where I would eat sometimes. I went there for the first time I had gone out in public after Arthur died. There was a woman who worked there, and I was always friendly with her, just the normal pleasantries, but I liked her. I was standing in the queue and she asked me what I wanted and I felt a little strange because there was no acknowledgement of anything. She treated me like anyone else, matter-of-factly, professionally. Um, She gave me my food and I gave her the money and she gave me back my change as she gave me back my change. She squeezed my hand purposefully. It's a quiet act of kindness, the simplest, most articulate of gestures, but at the same time, it meant more than all that anybody had tried to tell me, you know, because of the failure of language in the face of catastrophe. And then Ajahn starts chanting, chanting metta, metta. And sometimes, you know, when you've done a lot of chanting, when you've said the metta sutta, when you've done the practice forever, it's like those those words, they, they kind of have this channel in the heart-mind. And um, they sort of like evoke goodness in such a fully full-hearted full-bodied way 
and um, and there is this sense of uh, of kind of plugging into um, the stream of Dharma love. It's like, how far is that? How far is that stream right now? And part of why we practice is uh, so that it feels very close at hand. Very close at hand, all it takes is just tilting the heart a little bit. And all those years, all those hours of practice, of rehearsing love, comes back. Metta sahagatena, the mind made vast, the mind, heart-mind made vast with love. And this is really a, a love that um, that can't go wrong. Not so many species of love that can't go wrong. And a lot of kinds of love can go wrong, sideways in one way or another. But this is a love that that cannot go wrong because it does not uh, depend on samsara being arranged in a particular way. And so uh, the sense of actually plugging into that and, um, and the sense that there's no, no unfolding that invalidates this love, no pain possible that, uh, that reduces it and so it, it said it can't, you know, it's measureless. It's measureless. And to be met in that way, that's a true meeting. That's a true meeting. That's heart, heart resonating with heart. And, um, and how, how deeply we long to, to be met in that way because it gives space for us in our, you know, in our strength and our limitation and our confusion and pain and love makes space for all of it, all of it. To feel like, yeah, there's no line being drawn between what belongs and doesn't. And so his brother's grip gets stronger and, um, and then goes on to say that it was poignant but satisfying. Poignant but satisfying. It's not up to me, says, to make something happen. I can't cure this person, cannot change this person. Nothing I can do or say, however much I'd like to. One feels the sense of wanting to do something, being a bit worried wanting to help him, feeling, what can I do? Just relaxing, just relaxing. It can feel so terrible not to be able to do something. It's almost like we don't give that enough 
credit just how bad it feels to to want to help and to be to run into the limitations of one's control and in some relationships some relationships that are close i i feel like almost uh almost haunted by the limitations of my power to free the other of suffering and um and i see you know i see greed aversion delusion and it might be subtle in them but there's something about it that i can just almost not bear yeah it's way more evocative in them than it is in me and um and there's a way in which for when we love another person their suffering becomes a, almost tragic and um to be empathically connected to them and to be to face the limitations of one's power which are nearly complete to free them of that uh that's hard to open to and the impulse to actually change them to change the situation for me even just in kind of micro ways like it just reaches a certain kind of fever pitch of just like ah just the intolerance of the other's pain or the way it kind of like spins me and um you know growing up it's like the the suffering of a of a parent or caretaker or something that's not a cause for compassion that's like an existential threat right to see very clearly the limitations of 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 the person who's who's protecting you right to see the kind of omnipotence just uh dispelled you know that's that's haunting kind of and somehow it feels like that imprinting the, the that way of relating to the suffering of loved ones has like carried through even in contact I'm grown up now right and I'm I don't depend in the same ways but the same kind of spinning happens right in different kinds of relationships and then the kind of intolerance of their pain can prompts me into action some kind of intervention that masquerades as compassion but is definitely not compassion has got a impulsive driven feel to it right and the kind of white hot core of willfulness willfulness this kind of frustration when we cannot change another we cannot deliver them from suffering and um 
and the the kind of entanglement of that, the ways that in the kind of close relationships it's it's so easy to become over identified with the pain of the other and and empathy care compassion it's fatiguing when the pain of the other and one's own pain becomes indistinguishable right i i think as carl rogers said um something like around therapeutic exchange, accurate empathy to feel the pain of the other as if it were your own without losing the as if condition, without losing the as if condition. We lose the as if condition and then it's emotional contagion and we're just swimming in it, right? We're over identified with it. But um, here we 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 kind of have to distinguish the pain of the other from one's own pain. Otherwise, we both drown. It's not up to me to make something happen. It's not up to me to make something happen. That's like a lot of relief can come in that. There's a certain grief maybe in seeing the limitations of our power, the inevitability of suffering, right? But there's, um, there is, uh, um, there's some relief. And I remember when I heard that line when I was listening to the talk, it was just like, oh yeah, something let down in my own heart. And so we've really got to find a way to to keep our heart open even amidst our powerlessness. To keep the heart open even amidst helplessness. Which has got to be among the most kind of, you know, aversive postures for a human to be in. But um, a lot of relief in giving up on change. Sometimes we nurture change and sometimes we give up on it. And on the far side of our compassion can either be despair or equanimity. Equanimity And so compassion is love in the face of suffering. And maybe we think equanimity is somehow not caring. What do you mean? How do you give up? What do you mean you give up? Yeah, we give up. That feels like the end of love, but it's actually just another species of love. It's love in the face of the endless, ungovernable nature of samsara that our care can never fully cure the first noble truth. And the kind of, certain kind of cutting through the grandiosity and the resistance and the impulsivity around it. Okay, 
How do I stay open? How does my heart remain open even amidst the limitations of my power on the other side of my willfulness, on the other side of my control? And so once you start to do this with people that are dying, it's more like you have to practice with people who are who are living, who are living. Um, the the neurosis. Um, we I feel like we get into trouble when, kind of the neurosis of one collides with the neurosis of the other. That's real pain, right? When our, our kind of clinging, clingings tangle up. Right? And so we do the best we can to clear our heart um, and to, um, so that the pain of the other does not resonate and reverberate with our wounds but with our love. And um, maybe in this way, some of our, uh, some of our, the care that we feel becomes more bearable, less impulsive, less uh, a kind of way of engineering the, shaping the heart of the other and is a, it becomes a kind of love that can't go wrong, that's always going to uh, be of service. The best will come out of that, loving kindness and trust. They will see that, and the best will come out of that. The best will not be perfect, but the best will come out of that. I offer this for your consideration. Um, Please uh, take what's useful and leave the rest behind.